questions that a lot of people have uh, when they read uh, the narrative in the book of the, the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy of the people of Israel going, especially the book of Joshua, of the people of Israel going into the promised land, going into Canaan, and the very extreme statements that God makes about the people living in that land. Um, and and if you're you know if you're at any time exposed to anyone talking about um, the Bible and the nature of God, they almost always bring up that the God of the Old Testament ordered genocide, all right? That He ordered um, the killing of people. And I think that that first of all, while it is true, they are given issue, they are ordered um, to be a army marching into a land and taking it. Um, it is not quite. Well, God just said, go kill them all and let God sort them out, which is how, when we use the word genocide, that's kind of how people are thinking. But rather, this was a matter of, uh, of God, um, first of all, God, God gives the Canaanites, without, I'm not going to get too detailed in this, but there is the opportunity given to the Canaanites to become members of the covenant people of Israel. They are given that opportunity, and many take it. Um, and so it is not just a blanket kill everybody, um, but it is a statement of separation. And Deuteronomy 7 is one of those passages that deals with this topic. And so uh, we're going to look there this morning. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Um, so it's 26 verses, so bear with me. But um, I want to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to get into the text of it. And keep in mind that this is Moses in a sermon preaching specifically now to the kids. Because their parents had abandoned uh, God. We read about them in chapter 1. They failed to go into the promised land when God sent them. God punished them, said they would drop dead in the wilderness. They would be there for 40 days, 40 years. Um, and remember how long the walk is from Mount Horeb, from Mount Sinai, to where they were at Kadesh Barnea. It's 11 days. They get stuck 40 years in a path they could have traveled in 11 days. It's like going to a department store when you have a wife and daughter. Anyway, um, I'm not going to go any further than that except to say, you guys ever seen the diagram? Have you ever seen the diagram of how men shop and it's just a straight line from the door to the thing he needs and then back out and then there's this curvy loopy thing going on? Unless it's only some men. I'm actually one of those guys that goes on the app at Home Depot, on the Home Depot app, finds out what aisle, section, and bay, whatever it is I need, I go directly there, I take the thing, and I leave. Because the last thing I need is somebody asking me whether I need help. I just, you know, when they come up to you like, do you need any help? I'm like, I'm looking for a screw. I think I figured out where they are. I'm, I'm good. Anyway, um, so on to chapter 7. Uh, uh, chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the seven nations who are more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and shall show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. 
then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, excuse me, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest or the lowest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, chesed, with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules, that's the word Shema, because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, now the word rules is mishpat, judgments, and the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you. He will bless you. He will multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain, your wine, your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. In the land that he swore to your fathers to give you, you shall be blessed above all people. Remember, they were fewer, the least. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock, and the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you know, will he inflict on you. But he will lay them on all who hate you. You shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you, or your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for they will be a snare to you. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm, by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them. Remember, they were chased like bees in, in chapter 1. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you, throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed, and he will give their kings into your hands, and he shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed him, destroyed them, the carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination, literally a stench, to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. Enjoy me in a word of prayer. Father, as we come once again to your word, Lord, we ask above all things that your name be exalted. 
These are difficult passages to deal with. Um, Lord, we pray that you will give us wisdom and clarity of thought and mind. Help us to see in these words the living word. We pray this in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I could literally spend months on this passage. Uh, there are all kinds of connections that are being made here. Um, this is an expansion of uh, a passage in Numbers 34, uh, 11 through 16. Um, in there, you just have the statement about go in um, and destroy destroy things, and um, we're gonna we're gonna it's much expanded in Deuteronomy. And remember that this is being written, although these are Moses's words. The book of Deuteronomy is is put together from his words much later, um, during a time when when the people of Israel are uniting around the worship of the Lord your God. Now, just read how many times the Lord your God appears in this passage. Deuteronomy, it's over and over and over again. It's not the Lord God, it's the Lord your God. Now in Hebrew, that's just a matter of adding a K at the end of a, the word God. It's actually pretty, uh, Elohim becomes Elohek, and it's, it's uh, your God, all right? And so, um, and he's constantly, constantly reminding them, he is your God. So why is he so rigid? And, and I'm going to dwell in verse 5, right, where it says, um, there's four things, thus you shall deal with them. One, you shall break down their altars. Two, dash in pieces their pillars. Three, chop down their asherim. And four, burn their carved images with fire. Why couldn't God just have a live and let live policy with the Canaanites? Why was it necessary to do this? Now, that question, that gets asked quite a bit, all right, why is God so opposed to the Canaanite religion Part of that is presentist. Part of it is our problem that we live in the modern world where religion and society and civil government and all those things are separated. We live in a post-First Amendment world. We forget that when the First Amendment to our Constitution was proposed, it was a radical, radical idea that the government should not respect any establishment of religion. Now, if you don't know anything about this, let me help you with this. One of the longest words in the English dictionary is anti-disestablishmentarianism. That word describes people who are opposed to the disestablishment of religion. The establishment of religion in the First Amendment is the fact that the, the faith used to be part of the government. In New England, all these white churches that weren't white when they were built Right, because Puritans didn't believe in painting things. Um, all these white churches in New England, in every town in New England, you drive through New Hampshire and you find one of two kinds of churches at the center of town. There's either a Congregationalist church or a Presbyterian church. You know why? The only difference between those in the colonial period was how their government was organized. Was it organized as a congregational vote or was it organized as elder-led? Everything else about them were the same, and you paid your tithes to the town government, which then paid for that church. That's the establishment of religion. And in America, there, the theory was, after we had beaten up the British, we went, okay, so what kind of, what brand of Christian are we going to be as a country? There was literally a question on the floor, and they said, well, we should have three allowed versions of Christianity. You could be Episcopalian, all right? If you're from Virginia, you can be, uh, you can be uh, Presbyterian or Congregationalist if you're from New England. And if you're a troublemaker, you can be a Baptist. 
And they went to the Baptists, which, by the way, were a, uh, a, a significant minority in, New, in Virginia um, and in Massachusetts. They went to the Baptists and said, How do you, how's that sound to you? And they went, absolutely not. We do not want your money. We don't think your money should go to other people. And they fought for the idea that the government should not support churches. How crazy is that? Uh, the establishment cause of the First Amendment... The freedom of religion is freedom from government entanglement with faith. It is not freedom from faith speaking in the public forum. And that interpretation is unconstitutional. It is not the muzzling of the church. The First Amendment is not about the muzzling of the church. It is about the church saying to the government, get out. Let us do what we, we are led by conscience to do. And the deists were okay with that because they didn't like the idea of other people telling them they had to be orthodox. And everybody that wasn't Christian, by the way, who there was a big debate. Does this cover like Jews and Muslims or can we just kick them out? Now, I say that jokingly, that was actually debated. That freedom of religion was not extended to people that weren't Christian. That was actually on the floor and it was in discussion. And I believe there was actually a Supreme Court case about it in the early 1800s, when the Supreme Court said, no, 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 this extends to all faiths. Um, the United States was an incredibly progressive idea in the late 18th century and early 19th century. Even the French were like, whoa, slow down. You guys are getting crazy with this freedom, eternity, you know, liberty and equality, and you don't even have a guillotine, all right? Um, so, so this idea of freedom of religion, it's a modern idea. It's only a few hundred years old. For most of human history, uh, there was not even an idea of separating faith from civic identity, from who you were. Um, and that's what is in focus here in Deuteronomy 7. In every village, in every city, in every household of the Canaanite world, there was an area set apart for your gods. Now, there are basically three levels of Canaanite religion. Um, at the top is what we call the mythical level. That's the, that's the part where if you ever had to take um, like uh, uh, literature of the Western world or, or ancient Near East mindsets or ancient Near East worldviews, you learn about Baal and, and you learn about uh, Tammuz and you learn about all these mythical stories that, that were told enough that they get copied a couple of times. And because they were copied in clay, they came down to us and everybody's like, oh, well, this is what everybody believed. Um, and there's this story about Baal and, and Yom, the, the sea, and they have a fight. I mean, he has a battle, uh, Baal, Baal, everybody says it Baal. There's actually a, a glottal stop in there, it's Baal. Um, but, um, but nobody knows what you're talking about when you say that. Um, so Baal and the ocean, and they have this war, and Baal becomes powerful, and El is the father god, and there's all this stuff going on. And everybody says, oh, that's what everybody believed. Well, that's not, that was kind of what the priests used, um, essentially, to generate offerings and money. Um, that, was, that was the mythical story, and that was what was done in the big feasts and parties and things, and, and there were enthronement feasts, and there were feasts where women were married, virgins were married to the gods, and they, I... I I have read more ancient Canaanite religion than I ever want to remember. Um, then, but then there was also a popular level of religion, 
Um, and that was the level I've talked about before. People had little gods on their belts and they would cover their eyes so they didn't see what they were doing. And, and everybody had a little kind of shrine in their house. Uh, it always makes me laugh as, a, as an ancient Near East history person. People are like, did you know that in Japan they like worship their ancestors? I'm like, I don't know how to break it to you. Your ancestors did too. All, all Iron Age societies, Stone Age societies have a, a level of religion where you kind of worship in the answers. Now, in the ancient Near East, it was kind of weird. Um, they had things like they would bury bodies under the floor of their houses. Um, and, and then once they had decomposed, they would pull them back up and take them to a mutual burial site. There was a lot going on. But they, they had their um, kind of um, their family gods, their ancestor gods, and then they had their household gods, all right, the, 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 ho- the god of the house, um, Bitel. Um, and, they, and they had kind of their own collection, um, which again, in Japanese society, they're kind of called kami. Uh, kami is the Japanese, um, a, a Japanese word for a spirit or a being. They don't actually have a word for a, like the one true God. Um, they would say okami, which, um, and so kind of this idea that they had this kind of religion. And then in between, there was the civic religion. There was the religion that was a part of your participation in the community. And, and that is what is being addressed here, okay? So I want to be very specific. This is not about individuals here. We're not talking about individuals going into other people's houses and wrecking their idols, all right? It's not like, a, you know, Ryan goes, oh, I can't believe that guy next door, his idol is his TV. I'm going to go take that TV for him, him. you know? Um, and then maybe set it up in my own, you know? No, all right, this, this idea was you as a people are entering into these villages, and when you enter them, you need to take action. Now, in order for us to understand what we're talking about, I have a couple of pictures that I want to put up for you. Most of us are familiar with the image of an altar that we see in most children's books. Go ahead and put that one up, Tom. Come on. There we go. Absolutely nothing in this picture is accurate. Nothing. This is supposed to be a picture of Abraham offering Isaac. Literally nothing is correct. He's not wearing the correct clothes. Isaac's not wearing the correct shoes. They have the wrong kind of knife. They're supposed to be at the highest point of the mountains. That is not what those mountains look like. But most importantly, the altar's wrong. The altar's wrong. Now, how many of you, that's what you think of when you hear the word altar? We think of this little thing. I want to show you what an actual altar looks like. I have one from Megiddo. That is an altar. See on the left side, that those steps, that's big enough for people to actually walk up the steps and, and do stuff on that platform. Now this is reconstructed. When it was originally built, it would have been, uh, these stones would have been pulled together and they would have been bound together um, with earth and, and mud and clay. And it was a big platform basically usually very close to the gates of a city or a village or a town and on top of that platform was where you did all of your your civil religion things now normally they would have an actual what we would call an altar it would be usually about this big they were not very big and and the canaanites have what's called a four horn altar there there are four little antlers kind of things sticking out of the side of it um, and you, and then you would put, they had a bowl and you would put some fire in there and then you would, you would cook things on it. It was kind of like a sacred hibachi, right? That's the, 
I mean, this was like a two-burner grill. I mean, that was basically what it was. Um, and we've sa- found several of these, uh, hundreds of these, actually, in various states and, and affairs all over uh, the, the, um, the, the Levant, uh, what is today Israel and Lebanon and, and Jordan. Um, this platform would then often be surrounded by stone pillars or obelisks, which would have inscriptions on them, um, and they set the boundary or the, bar- the, 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 the boundary of the sacred space. Um, and we actually, the, the people of Israel actually commanded to do this kind of thing, to set up these kind of monuments. Uh, in Exodus chapter 24, when Moses comes down from uh, Sinai, he sets up 12 of these pillars, these stone obelisks. Each one has the name of the people of Israel. When, when, when Joshua takes the people of Israel across the Jordan River, he sets up one of those monoliths on either side of the Jordan River so people would know uh, where they crossed the, the Jordan River. Um, so it's not, this is a, a pretty common thing to put these pillars up. Um, and then usually outside of the pillars, especially if it was outside of town, these would be surrounded by sacred poles or actual trees. So in town you would put poles, you would dig holes, you would put big rocks down on the ground with holes bored in them and you would stick these poles in them. They're called the Asherah, or the plural is Asherot or Asherim, um, and they were to represent sacred trees. Um, kind of like a maypole. If you've ever seen a maypole, that was kind of what they looked like. And they would be painted up, and, and sometimes there would be, they would be kind of like totem poles, like, you know, you see those um, with pictures of the god kind of inscribed into them, decorated, or, or they would be, you know, designed to look a certain way for that particular area. And then inside, on top of the platform, there would be an assortment of carved images. Now, when we read the word carved image, we automatically think the image of a god, right? We think of an idol, we think of an image of a god. Oh, that's the image of Baal, or, or that's the image of, of uh, the Asherah. Uh, there's, a female, there's a female deity that is, there are just thousands and thousands and thousands of these little um, kind of, uh, uh, I think she's supposed to be pregnant, but there's all kinds of theories about what she's supposed to be. But it's this little woman with a big belly, um, and some of them are, are this big, some of them are huge. Um, they, they, like, if you've ever seen like a, uh, and I don't mean to be an offensive, but this is an actual technical term, the fat Buddha statue, right, with the, the big Buddha belly. Um, they kind of look like that, um, but they're very definitely a woman. Um, I won't get into details of how they know it, but it's biological. And, um, and there, so there are images of these women. Uh, there are images of sacred animals. There, there are carved images of all kinds of different things. And what you would do, uh, you would go up on that altar. You know, everybody in town, uh, you had kind of your town gods, and they were worshipped in that, that, the complex off of that altar. So some places, like in... Um, uh, there's a place in, uh, in Jordan, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the name, but there was a god of metallurgy, and so there was a, a this is called a, a, a bema, all right, um, and, and this altar platform, and then all the way around the altar platform, there were metal shops, blacksmith shops, and so all the blacksmiths would have their platform, and, and if you wanted the blacksmith to make you horseshoes, I don't even know if they made horseshoes, I should know that, um, but if you wanted the, then you would bring your god to the altar and your your image of your god would be set next to the metallurgy god and they would have a negotiation based on your offering whether your horseshoes would hold together or not all right that was kind of the that was kind of the philosophy now we we read that and we go well that's kind of superstitious it's kind of weird i mean this is like like irish and leprechauns and stuff but this is this is actually how they believed the world worked 
Um, this was the Canaanite thing. Now, as I've described that, you'll notice that those four categories are what appear here in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 5. You will, right, when you enter the land, you shall, this is how you're going to deal with them. You shall pull down their altars. Notice the altars are made of stone. They're not bonded. They're not, they're not cut stone. It was always natural stone. High places, which are a separate kind of thing, would be built of cut stone, but these altars were always built of the natural stone of the area. You would pull down their altars, literally tear them apart. Um, you, would, you would tear that apart. Um, that platform was a representation, because of its location in the town, it was a representation of the blessing or presence of the particular local God over that town or city. So you had to tear that down to represent that this city no longer belongs to Chemesh or Moloch or Baal or Yom or Dagon. This city no longer belongs to your local God. This city now belongs to the Lord our God. You would dash in pieces their pillars. They're monument stones that were built around the altar that recognized how the God had blessed them. Oh, Dagon, he blessed us with a harvest of fish. Oh, Baal, he always brings us the great, great wheat harvest. Or, oh, Asherah, she makes all of our women pregnant all the time. Break those into pieces, God commands. Because the blessing and the prosperity of your past, all right, the past, the Canaanite prosperity that they thought came from these false gods, is a lie. Break them to pieces. Eliminate the divine sanction of these false gods. The ultimate blasphemy. Chop down their asherim. Break down. If they're natural trees, cut them down. If they are poles, tear them down. Because these trees, these, these wooden pillars, these signs of, of fertility and fecundity of these other gods, it has to be removed because we worship the God who created the heavens and the earth. And He alone is God. Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Lord your God is one. There is no Asherah. There is no Baal. There is no Dagon. They are not facets of your God. They must be removed. And then burn the carved images. Do you know that in the ancient society, there was nothing more insulting than to cremate a body? They did not believe in cremation. It was the absolute worst thing you could ever do to someone. The ancient Egyptians, if someone died away from the land of Egypt, they would literally pickle the body and carry it with them in a jar until they could get back to Egypt and bury the body properly. There are no, no burials of native Egyptians in the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, the, the Old Kingdom, Middle Kingdom, New Kingdom. There are no burials of native Egyptians anywhere except Egypt. You had to be buried in your land. And we have hints of that, that the Hebrews also had a similar idea. 
Jacob, Jacob, when he dies in Egypt, his body is taken to the family tomb. When Joseph dies, they embalm the body, and then when the people of Israel leave Egypt, they take his body with him to be laid with his family. Um, you did not burn a body. You didn't leave a body out to be exposed. You didn't leave a body out to be eaten by dogs and things like that. You absolutely did not. Now, the Romans loved to do that as an insult. That was part of the purpose of crucifixion. Not to blow up another one of the pictures that everybody has in their head. But you know, you see the picture of Jesus and he's crucified and he's like 45 feet off the ground. All right, that is completely and utterly inaccurate. Not to mention impossible. Try, try erecting a telephone pole every time you're executing a criminal. All right, that's not going to happen. They kept them low enough to the ground and their, hand, their, their feet were nailed to the ground so that at night the dogs could come and gnaw on their feet. It was a desecration. It, the, the idea that a body would, that's why they buried bodies. That's why the Hebrews bury bodies. Uh, even though they would put them in stone, because I don't know if you've noticed, but Israel doesn't have a lot of dirt. So you would put them in caves and you would let the body desiccate there and then you would stack, take the, the bones and you would put them in a box, what's called an ossuary, which is just Latin for bone box. Um, that's not what the Hebrews called it. They didn't speak Latin. Um, but this idea, you would never in a million years consider burning a body. And the carved images of the gods had the spirit of the gods in them, according to the Canaanites. That's why they're commanded to burn them. These are not living things. They are fuel for the fires of the wrath of God. Burn them with fire. These cultic images, this local religion, if it had been allowed to persist, it has nothing to do with God having competition. It has everything to do with the Israelites starting to think about God as if he was one of the Canaanite gods. As if he could be controlled by the right offerings, the right altar. As if he could be, uh, as if he could be summoned when they needed him to make sure their horseshoes got built correctly. It wasn't just a matter of purity of us for our own sake. It was a matter of holiness. There is one God and he tolerates no false gods. Now, I want to give you a little theory that one day may become a paper that has nothing to do with the message, but I'm going to share it with you because it's fun. For me, if you look very carefully at these, I believe that the Canaanites were constructing a false Garden of Eden in their altars. An elevated platform with a specific boundary around it, trees, and in the middle of it, what? The images of their God. When God creates the Garden of Eden, what does he do? He creates the garden, he sets limits to it, he fills it with trees, and then in the middle of the garden, what does he do? He places the image of God. Male and female created he them. I think these are little Edens. These are little attempts to reclaim what has been lost by our own power and our own ability. In order for us 
to realize the promise of God, we must be willing to commit to complete destruction our version of His promises. Our version of Eden. Our version of what it means to speak to our God. Our version of what it means to be holy. Those things must be committed to the fire and be allowed to fall down and die in order for us to be a people holy to the Lord your God. You may not notice this at first glance. I didn't notice it the first hundred times I read this. Verse 6, you are all people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you. When he says the Lord your God, he's not saying you chose him. Oh, he's my God. He's saying he chose you. He chose us. Now, you've got to be careful about making too many applications of the people of Israel to the, the church. Lots of people make a lot of mistakes doing that. But the principle here is that it is God's action. God, uh, look, at, look at the beginning of the chapter, all right? As you enter the land and you take position, um, the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take position of it and clears away many nations before you. Who clears away the nations? God. Well, then why does he need the people of Israel to do the conquest? Because there's a synergy of God and those who are holy to him that only exists when we clear out our expectations, our altars, and line ourselves up with his will. You have been chosen. In order for us to realize the promise of God, we must be willing to commit to the destruction of our expectations of what it is. Now let's talk about that just in practical terms real quick for a second. We go to God and we say, God, I thought that I'd be further along in my life by now. What did I do wrong? God, I don't understand why you're submitting, subjecting me to this particular difficulty. What altar are we praying at? When we put our expectation upon what God should be doing for us. God, I really, really thought, you know, my wife, you know, really, really thought she was going to marry a six foot tall, handsome millionaire. She didn't really. She knew she was going to get stuck with a hobbit. Um, we set our expectations and we say, God, this is what we think Eden should be. This is what we think you should be. This is what... This is how we should live. The people of Israel were called to level those expectations in the villages they were going to live in because they were meaningless in the face of the living God. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to let go of our expectations of who God should be for me and accept that God chose me. He is my God because of His choosing because of His love, because of His grace, because of His faithfulness. 
and to tear down the altars that exist in our lives. Can you join me in a word of prayer and then we're going to close with this song. Father, once again, as we are reminded of your holiness and our call, uh, our journey as your people, you ask a lot of us. You call us to a, a tremendous responsibility as your people. Lord, help us to take the steps to truly walk in the promise. A little by little, you said, not all at once. But little by little, you are making us more and more the people that you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name.